This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Hello, I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's a special edition of Unholy because we're at that special time of the year between the New Year and Yom Kippur, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so, as it's become, I think we can call it a tradition. It's already, we've been up and running long enough that we always thought at this time of year, it's nice to have something a little bit slower, a bit, a little bit more reflective to fit the kind of vibe of this period of the year. And so our guest is someone who really does fit that and speak to that mood really, really well. I couldn't agree more, Jonathan. We are thrilled to speak to Nicole Krauss on Unholy today. Nicole Krauss is one of America's leading novelists. She's the author of five critically acclaimed books, Man Walks Into a Room, her first novel, which she wrote at the age of 25, The History of Love, one of my favorite novels, uh, followed by Great House and Forest Dark. And a recent book is a collection of short stories titled To Be a Man. Her books have been translated into 37 languages, and she recently returned from a long summer vacation in Tel Aviv, Italy, and Beirut. We might talk about that a little later in our um, conversation. Nicole, it's such a unique pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Uh, you know, I want to kind of begin, Nicole, if I may, asking you about uh, this collection of short stories. New York Times wrote about it. Uh, this, quote, Krauss's stories capture characters at moments in their lives when they're hungry for experience and open to possibility. And that openness extends to the stories themselves. And I, I add to that, that kind of tension uh, that you're always preoccupied with between the desire for change and the desire for stability and the tension between power and vulnerability. I mean, you've, you know, wrestled with these questions throughout your writing career. How different is it when you're writing it as, as a short story, when you're asking these questions in this kind of format? Um, you know, a short story is kind of a little bit like, um, it's like a lover instead of a marriage, you know, like <laughs> you do have different, there are different attributes that you're searching for. And when you, when you know, you don't have to live with this material or this character for years and years, um, the way that you do with a novel. So there are certain risks that I feel like I can take. Again, not even stylistically, because I think, or structurally, I think I do that in the novels as well. But just to to spend time with something or someone or a concern that maybe um, has a certain edge to it that I might not want to live within a novel. Um, and I do, you know, I think it's always fascinating when you see your work paraded out before you. You begin to understand something about what there is that's kind of gotten under your skin. That, um, mm-hmm. that you keep coming back to. And I think, you know, you're absolutely right about this idea that somehow in these stories, this, this, there's this repeated theme of where do we find ourselves at any given moment in our lives on this spectrum that we're, that we're always traveling. We're traveling back and forth on it. We begin when we're infants and we, we continue to travel on it through middle age and old age of, of between a desire for stability and for, the comfort of that which is secure, and also this other need we have for, for freedom, the freedom to change. I always think it's kind of interesting that we're the only species that is aware of the fact that it's our destiny to evolve. And that's an uncomfortable knowledge to have. We have to do something about it. 
And so I think these characters are, you know, are struggling with where they find themselves on that um, spectrum. And it's something that I like to think about, however uncomfortable it may be. (laughs) I I want to pick up partly on the title, um, To Be a Man, and the fact that you, you know, write from the viewpoint of men as much as and as often as you do from the viewpoint of women or uh, and whether that what that demands of you uh, as a writer, whether it's freeing or whether it's something that is a response partly to how you know the relations between the sexes are played out in the public life and public world, whether it's a kind of statement to be made. What what's going on there? Mm. I've been thinking about it a lot because um, I started as a younger you know female writer gravitating towards male characters. I thought for a long time because I was arguing for a certain kind of seriousness, a certain kind of authority, which wasn't, wouldn't have been naturally granted to a young female writer, even, you know, 20 years ago, things have changed a lot in that time. Like I'll, we all can remember that the phrase chiclet used to be used with abandon. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, when I was publishing uh, my first novel and, and thinking about becoming a writer, and I so wanted to be taken seriously. And somehow there was this, I thought for a long time, there was an instinct to throw my voice into material um, that wasn't particularly feminine, because of course, there's this concern that somehow the feminine would not be loud enough, would not be strong enough, would not be authoritative enough. Um, now that seems like a bunch of of crap to me, <laughs> having gone through life as a woman for as many years as I, as I have. Um, and actually now I think about that choice a little differently. I think that may have been that, that insecurity may have been part of it, but honestly, I think there's also always been an enormous joy for me as there probably is for any writer in getting to reach oneself into the other of becoming the other. It's so, it's so glorious a feeling that we don't ever get in life. I mean, it's part of why we're readers, right? Like we we get to be inside and inhabit another character so fully. It's it's uncanny. They they become us. We become them. And so I think having this opportunity to do that in voices and lives that I don't have access to in my own has been liberating and exciting. Um, I will say that although I think I I still do, I'm still drawn to writing in the voices of men. I alluded to this a moment ago, but, you know, in, in 48 years of life, a lot has happened to me as a woman. There's a lot of rich material to draw on. <laughs> and I find myself attracted to mining that in a way that I might not have um, simply because I didn't have it when I was 25 and starting out. It's interesting. I, I would just sort of maybe go back in time to one of your more most famous uh, protagonists, which is uh, uh, Leo Gursky of The History of Love. And it, I remember reading it and thinking, it's not only writing as a man, but it's writing as a very old man. And you were a very young woman. How even, I mean, this is a question that only an ignorant person that's never published a novel can ask, but how do you even tap into that, you know, that dark loneliness of, of his character? I think there must be something in writing that, in the way that I imagine there must be an acting that is inexplicable and connecting to this outrageous right we think we have to do that. <laughs> but this ability not even to question it, that to just believe somehow 
I mean, that as a whatever, I guess I was 27 when I started to write that book, that somehow I could be him. Why couldn't I? What Didn't I know plenty about loneliness? Didn't I have um, grandparents who had survived the war? Didn't I, didn't I know something of these things? Or couldn't I imagine them? Like, what well, you know, why would my imagination fall short? And now it seems to me a little bit insane. It seems ridiculous. I think I would, I would have pause now. Um, if someone said to me, you know, write somebody or something utterly and totally different from what you are. But I was doing the thing that we always do as writers, which I was drawing from what is me so much so that when people would ask me this question at the time, where did this person come from? And I remember sometimes I would be asked, in, you know, New York reading where my grandfather still alive would be in the audience. And the question was like, you know, is this model, is this man modeled after your grandfather? And there would this, be this guffaw from him because like so far was Leo Gursky from who he was. And I would always answer and say, he's me. You know, it really is. I dropped the bucket down into the well of whatever is in here and out came that. And um, maybe I couldn't have written that had I not had the distance of pretending that I was writing an old man. It's funny. I mean, um, Yonit knows I've written a bit of fiction myself, and the, the the thrillers that I've written are from the vantage point of a woman. And I always did that because actually it was the easiest way for me to make it not me. Because I found if I had a male protagonist, it just sort of lurched back into being me. But I know exactly what you mean. There's also in in everything and all the characters there's obviously going to be fragments and parts of yourself. But what you're talking about is interesting because what you're saying really is that you don't want people to think that it's you. You and you don't want to think it's you. You want to have that distance that frees you from that uh, assumption. And I think you know whether you're whether you're on that side of it. Whether you're like I don't want anyone else to think this is actually me, or whether you're trying to sort of convince yourself of that. In the end, you have to play that game. You. You are always in some way or other writing about yourself. You have no choice but hmm. to write about yourself because you are only ever you with your experiences and your memories and your sense of smell and your sense of taste. And, you know, it's like when a, when a reader comes up to me and says, Oh, I love how you describe that scene. And you actually look at the scene or you remember the scene and it's so skeletal what you described, like, you know, an autumn night. Hmm. A, a yellow window looked at from the outside, but that yellow window, that feeling of autumn, that particular light comes from the reader's imagination. She has supplied all of those things. You've just given her the opportunity. Um, and I think we're, we're just, we're always playing this game as writers and readers of like, who is who, how much of ourselves is here? How much are we hiding? How much are we showing? And that's part of what's so exciting about, about it. The thing you were saying before about authority, though, that, you know, that there was in some ways the, you were a young woman and yet there was a, there was a greater sort of authority imagined in having the older man. I, I put a sort of Jewish layer on that, partly because you have a wonderful endorsement quote on, on your, I think more than one of your books from Philip Roth. And in a way, we think of him as the sort of archetypal Jewish American novelist. And it's, and already there's the sort of great American novel trope and all that but there is a particular thing about the big american jewish man saul bellow philip roth etc and i'm just wondering to what extent that was also part of the thing that you were you know as a young writer starting out there was this sort of almost there's a particular jewish canon in american right. literature and whether that was also partly where 
right. you know, Leo was coming from in House in uh, History um, of Love? It's so hard to say. I I know that you know those who come before us they 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 create. First of all, we're always always in conversation with them. You know, I always think that writing is like being in conversation with your dead. You know, your particular dead, and everyone's dead, but your particular <laughs> dead. And I think writing muscular sentences thick with wonderful vocabulary. I think of Saul Bellow. And so when I would find myself in one of those sentences, I would be in conversation with him in some way. You know, Philip, I was in, I had the luck of being in conversation within life for many, many years, although I was in conversation with him in my mind long before that, because uh, my mother gave me Portnoy's complaint when I was 12 and, you know, thus began Whoa. a long, hmm. long, That's long, pretty early and, for that book. Yes. Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> early for that book indeed. Um, but I, you know, I, I have a lot of f- feelings about this idea of like those who came before us, because of course we like to pretend that we're not influenced. We like to pretend that we're sui generis and sort of sprung up out of nowhere. And that's, that's a particular obsession in the world of literature. You know, you think about music or painting in which there's a kind of sampling or borrowing or architecture, or sampling or borrowing from the past. And in, and in literature, we have this idea that we should, that, the writer somehow has to be a solitary genius and it just is never the case. And so of course I, I wanted to sample from those people. History of Love is filled with <laughs> samplings of Bruno Schultz or Bello or Kafka or, you know, on and on, this one on and on. It was, just, that book is very much a celebration of literature, mm-hmm. but there is a point at which one wants to ask the question or the question arises inescapably, like what is there that I can do that is uniquely my own. What what is mine and only mine? And and if there isn't something like that, um, why am I writing? Don't don't I aren't I required to somehow be? And I think you know those early books are full of the, that that conflict between both wanting to be in conversation with the past and wanting to clear open a space where I could comfortably live by myself. You know. So if we're on that conflict and we are talking about Judaism, uh, on the one hand, if you have a story in the collection, uh, Zusha on the Roof, which is very much this sort of, you know, older professor, a little bit uh, maybe reminiscent of of Leo Gursky, Professor Broadman, who, you know, has been serving tradition his whole life and is trying to maybe free his own grandson uh, born while he was dying and then came back to life from these shackles of of tradition. And on the other hand, I, I remember you saying once that, you know, very early in my writing life, you say, I realized it was a gift to have been born into Jewish culture and Jewish literature and Jewish thinking. So I guess my question is, is it more uh, a gift or more a burden? Can we say that the burden is a gift? Because I think, you know, there's a way in which being granted the chance to to argue against the weight of you know, duty to one's history or one's people is a wonderful opportunity as a writer. It's not a great position to have to hold up in life, but as a writer, it's it's rich. And I think I'm shocked, I'm still shocked that I became so engaged with Jewish thinking and history and text. I didn't expect that as a young person. I wasn't raised in a particularly religious home or a home that was really engaged with those those texts, we had, we were, you know, Jewish in the way of, you know, in a sort of cultural way and, and, and very strongly in a kind of historical way and that my family had all come from Europe and, and, and some way or other left because of the war and, and lost lots of family there. 
I think, you know, I felt so strongly that I've not wanted to in any way be a representative of, you know, 3,000 years <laughs> of, of history. And, and yet at the same time, I've wanted to delve into it. And so I'm always like occupying, again, both of those positions, both like, please don't pigeonhole me, don't, don't make me um, have to carry all of this. But at the same time, you know, one wanting to have my cake and eat it too, because, um, you know, there's so much to write about. There's so much to engage with there. Just say more about the first part of that, the idea that it can be, you know, quite a burden in life. Great for a writer because it's access to this amazingly rich debate and millennia-old conversation. It goes back to your thing before about being in dialogue with writers, and I think that's a very particularly Jewish thing. If you think about the Talmud, it's just each generation talking to the one before. But just you, but you said it was, but you know, in life, not so much kind of thing. I, I'm just yeah. interested in how that plays out for you. I mean, I can project like the, your reader looking at the window. I can project all my own imaginings for that. But what's your, what was behind your saying of that? Well, I mean. <laughs> You know, I think about being all the ways in which being born into a family that experienced the Holocaust, for example, reverberates on and on and on and on in ways that continue to surprise me this far through my life. Or, you know, the ways in which kinds of loss or um, are, are just embedded in my psyche. And that's difficult. That's not easy. You know, I see, I see it in, in reflected even in my children. No, no matter how hard I've tried to alter it, deflect it, you know, somehow have it, <laughs> have you know, Great House, for example, was written right after I, I, my children were born, three years apart, but it was written during that time. And that book is deeply about the kind of struggle with the question of what is it that we pass on to our children, you know, the, that burden of inheritance. And then... After that book was published, there was an, a review in Haaretz by a psychoanalyst. Um, and I remember the title was something like Nicole Krauss staggers under the weight of for the, you know, the duty to Jewish history or something like that. And then Zuzi on the roof came out of that reading that review. So one, you know, it was a long link chain of kind of thinking about this. And I say that it's difficult in life for the reasons I just described, but it's, it's really a wondrous gift in writing because that story is about, came out of that sense of conflict, right? And, and ultimately that story is for me a way of liberating myself from it. Here is this old man who is absolutely bent under the weight of having assigned himself the task of kind of carrying his father's desires for him as a Jewish scholar, a keeper of Jewish history. And here he is breaking free with this grandchild who's about to be circumcised and joined into this long, you know, bound into this tapestry, which has caused him so much difficulty, right? Which has stymied him in so many ways. And there's this moment that where the story ends up on a rooftop where it's like, you know, what, what will happen? He, what can happen at that point, right? He somehow wants his child to be this child, this grandchild, to be liberated in ways that he couldn't. And it was glorious to write that story in a way that it wouldn't be glorious to live it, right? It wouldn't be <laughs> glorious to be to have had to be Broadman. Yeah. I, I, you know, we're talking about the tension in writing, and obviously there's a lot of your writing that takes place in New York and a lot of it that takes place in, in Tel Aviv throughout your, your career and in Israel in general. 
And it seems, again, as the Israeli in this conversation, that you kind of take your own unique path because it's not, you don't gloss over uh, our rough edges at all. It's not a romanticizing uh, the Israeli, but it's not, on the other hand, the sort of even caricature of the aggressive, crude Israeli. And I, there's this a line by Amos Oz that said, Israel is a dream come true and as such is disappointing. And it seems to me that you're never really disappointed in Israel. You're just looking mm. at it and observing it. Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know if I ever approached it to be delighted or disappointed. I, I don't even remember ever approaching it because my relationship with it is older than I have memory for, than I can remember. You know, I've been going there since I was an infant. And, and so it's always been a fact of being in my, in my life. And, I think what's again been interesting and maybe something of a gift for me in a way that, you know, when you're born in Israel and, and same when you're born in America, you, you have to deal with a lot of the, the problems with those places, right? You're sort of stuck with the problems. But as a writer and to some degree as a person, I've had this wonderful opportunity to have both. So I, I always have here and I always have this elsewhere. And, you know, those things switch when I'm in either place. And so when I'm, of course, in New York, Israel is this other, this other place. And mm -hmm. I can throw my mind, my imagination, my voice to it. And I can, sometimes it allows me to look back on here with different eyes and vice versa. So, I mean, increasing, I think I mostly have American characters who are in Israel. Mm -hmm. I did write an extended Israeli character in Great House. So of the, those four narratives, there's an Israeli father, um, Actually, I, re I remember well that I gave it to, at the time, four esteemed, no, three really esteemed um, older Israeli writers uh, that I was friends with or I, that I gave the manuscript to. And I remember that two of them absolutely loved that character. And one of them, I felt, was offended at, at, at the notion that I could, that I would try to, to write an Israeli man somehow. And so there, there is always that question of what are we allowed to touch and not touch. I, I tend to try to gloss over that, and um, but it, it's there, you know. I've been fascinated by having the opportunity to be in one place or another and to sort of occupy the, the zone between them as well. Listeners right now are trying to guess who those three are, right. which may relate to what I was going to <laughs> ask you next, actually, because I don't want to gang up on your knee, but you and I are the two diaspora Jews in this conversation. <laughs> and I have uh, noticed that. Yeah. <laughs> The now late Alephbet Yoshua um, may have been one of your three. Uh, well, you're not going to tell us. But he obviously died this year. But I, I think you had a conversation with him. I did too in, in sort of public, these public debates. And he had this position, which was really unusual in a way, this sort of classic, the sort of Coke, Coke classic of Zionist positions, which was the only full Jewish life could be in Israel and anything else was incomplete. And he said it to me, and I think he said it to you, you know. Oh, yeah, um, I mean yeah, um, that this is what you, you know, you're not the full pack there. Right. And tell us about that conversation and what you, what your response to him, since we're saying about you, one can be in dialogue with the dead, what your response to him is, like you don't have to say was, because we're in constant dialogue. I remember that conversation well, because he was almost belligerent about it. And, and um, I found it so shocking. It seemed, seemed such a reductive position you know, when you're a writer, you understand this, um, there's, there's, you understand the gift of subtlety and it was not a very subtle argument. I think, 
I've had this conversation with a lot of Israelis and a lot of Israeli writers. And one friend of mine said, yeah, but Nicole, 500 years from now, when the Jewish story is told about this time, it's going to be all about Israel. Like, and you're not there. So this is maybe a, a slightly kinder uh, version of, of Pooley's argument, but don't you feel that you sort of want to be there? But I think like in the larger, larger, larger picture, this moment to me is fascinating from a diasporic perspective because for two, three thousand years, you know, Israel has been moving back and forth between idea and reality. It's just swinging in this spectrum. When Abraham was told to go to this place, it was still just an idea. And when Moses was moving toward that place, it was still just an idea. And then it became a reality. And then it became an idea again, an exile. And, and so for the longest time, I think in the diaspora, we had a right to that story as it was coming out of idea into like, a, you know, a true reality. And at this point, we are increasingly in, in, in America and Britain, we are increasingly on the outside of that story. We, we can no longer, we cannot, we no longer have a right to tell that story from the inside. It's a story that's been hijacked by Israel itself, right? It's now happening hmm. not in a diasporic Ashkenazi religious post Holocaust context, but in a very Middle Eastern context that that's secular and all the culture that's being pumped out of Tel Aviv is, you know, example to that. Um, and I just, I feel that that's interesting to me that that is a story in and of itself. And so it's interesting to me to be on the outside of that and look onto that. Um, I don't feel that I'm missing something by not being in inside of it. Um, I feel like I have enough material beyond <laughs> to write about. Um, and, and in the end too, I, th- I think there's something reductive about reducing us to the places in which we live and the places in which we're born. Um, I'm interested, for example, right now in writing about middle age. That That's a country that has no borders. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't want to be stuck in writing only about what it is to be middle-aged in Israel or middle-aged in New York or middle-aged in Japan. I think there's a beautiful line in The Husband, which I, there are so many beautiful stories in this collection. I'd be hard pressed to say which is my favorite, but it's definitely one of the one of my favorites in your collection. And there's this line about people whose roots are sown in two places so that it can never grow deeply in either. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you you feel? I mean, being again, you know, your mother grew up in London, your father in Israel and, and in the United States. Is it a feeling that you kind of have? I think, and yeah, of course. I think I have a, a very sense of being, of being an outsider or being on the edge of a lot of things. But again, that's a, a position that's incredibly advantageous, um, mm-hmm. as a writer and that it allows you to like slip under the border into things and then slip out again. Mm-hmm. I don't feel maybe it's a, a, a certain like, uh, rebellious quality of mine, but I don't want to belong <laughs> to anything in particular or to anyone in particular. I feel it's mm-hmm. so, it's so childish almost to say it, but I feel it in that almost childish sense in that childish rebellious sense of like, I don't want to be anyone's. I don't want to be bound to have to tell it from one side or the other. I think that the freedom to, I guess, I guess I feel like when you're, when you belong to something, there's always the possibility of having to betray it. And I think you have to, when you write, you are constantly, you betray yourself, you betray what you know, you know, you betray other people. That's part of writing. And I don't want to feel badly about that in some sense. I want to feel free 
Because the other part of betraying is discovering something, discovering mm-hmm. something true that was, uh, that nobody wanted to say. <laughs> I was wondering, because you talked about, you know, being this young woman starting out in the literary world and, and you found success at such an early age. And again, I wonder if that is kind of a gift and a burden or both, what you would call the burden is the gift. But on the one hand, obviously kind of realizing pretty early on that you might be able to do what you love and, you know, be able to, to make a livelihood out of it. But on the other hand, everyone kind of looking at you and, and having their expectations and projecting whatever they want on your, on your career. Uh, yeah, I, I th- both of those are absolutely true. Um, mm-hmm. I never forget that I'm incredibly like lucky to be a mm-hmm. writer. It's such, it's a, such an awful job and it's such a wonderful job <laughs> at the same time. Um, when it's awful, nothing can be worse because you are, you're left alone with yourself, right? And, and out of that, out of some place that feels, can feel sometimes like a bit of nothingness, you have to drag a whole world and it's mm-hmm. a terrible job to have to do. When it's working, it doesn't matter what's going on in the rest of your life. It's, it's such a beautiful place to be. It's that incredible feeling of, being inside something, being born, something like a whole world, you know. After all these years, mostly what I think about is like the, that internal experience of being a writer. I've kind of lost sight as time has passed of what it looks like on the outside, what what people may think of the books. All of that kind of gets shed with time. And now I think so much about the strangeness of it's been now, I don't know how many, it's been 20 years that I've been publishing, more than 20 years that I've been publishing, but I've been writing since I was 15. I've been in this strange, strange work, the most beautiful, <laughs> the most awful for so long. Um, and I can't imagine my life without it. I can't imagine if I had had to become something else, if this hadn't worked out. And um, it's so, it's so much just woven into who I am as a person, the choices I've made. And sometimes those choices, I mean, I don't even, sometimes I don't know whether I've chosen things in my life because I'm a writer and I need to pursue those freedoms that I was describing. I need to pursue that, the capacity for change or whether I'm a restless person and so have a lot to write about because (laughs) my life keeps evolving and changing. But whatever the case, I can no longer tell the difference between the life I live as a writer and the, and the writing, the life that I write about. It's been an incredible ride. I hope it continues, but it's been an incredible ride. And, and you know, the rest becomes very small by comparison. It's one of those things where sort of being and doing sounds like they're sort of one and the same thing in terms of writing. Yeah, it's just that my evolution as a person and my evolution as a writer are bound up with each other, you know, and I can't imagine what it would be like if I couldn't, I'm looking at my, the books that I've written that are on the shelf there. I, I dare not take them down. I haven't reread any of them, but I know that inside of them is this now lengthening history of how I've lived and what I've thought and what I've struggled with and what I've wanted and what I've lost. And it's there, you know, it's there. And I've been engaging with it. Um, for so long now, I can't imagine what I would have been like as a person had I not had the luck to have time for that, to be able to do that. Um, I, yeah. might, have, I might have been a lighter person. <laughs> have I, you haven't reread them? 
Th- no. Is that what you said? You, yeah, I haven't si- reread since them. What, since there were what since you just gave the manuscript and and that's it and sort of never went back to reading. Well, I, I sometimes have to read parts of them, but you know, mm-hmm. you you tend to sort of choose certain parts to read, and then you read those parts and kind of forget about the rest of the book. Oh. So I have not read them, and um, I, I know it's a strange thing. Oh. I think I think they're waiting for me to reread one day, mm-hmm. but um, you know, part of. Part of the issue is that you you need to change as a writer, right? And so you can't spend too much time looking behind you at what you did. The, with every book, it's like this demand for becoming something else, like reinventing the novel, reinventing what reinventing what a novel means, reinventing yourself. So no uh, noticing behind in the past. Well, uh, can we just talk to hear something about what it, the actual? practical business of writing involved for you because you mentioned your teaching are you one of those writers who whatever happens rain or shine part of the day you will write because almost it's just sort of a physical need that has to happen and whether because I'm thinking about the difference between when you started now I mean the 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 ability to be in stillness and quiet uninterrupted Mm. it seems to me is much harder now in 2022 than when you were starting just because of you know, you people like us coming in via Zoom into your room there, and you know the the and social media and all the rest of it. Is it different now as a process from when you started? I think so. Also, you didn't add the main factors, which is I have sixteen and thirteen year old children, so it's been like seventeen years since I was able to wake up and just write. <laughs> um, so that changed things an awful lot. I I still remember the days of writing my first and second novels and just being absolute captain of my own time and writing maniacally um, and reading, you know, reading is such a big part of the work, right? Just having fresh sentences and structures in your mind. And, and, and that, you know, for some years was my uninterrupted life. I will say though, that I didn't put enough of an emphasis when I was that age and young on the importance of living itself in order mm. to write well. I mean, certainly I saw how important it was to be in conversation with, with the dead, as we said, and to read a lot. But so much life is required to write well. And that becomes evident as you get older and you've written a lot of your stories already, right? You've used a lot of, burned your material already. And new things must happen to you, or you at least need to observe them in your friends or your your family in order for you to stumble into new things to write about. And so I feel I'm a, I'm a bit less tyrannical about sitting at my desk than I used to be. I give myself more room to take an invitation, to travel, to live as much as I can. And then I don't have a choice because I have my kids. <laughs> They drag me into life over and over again. <laughs> I, I seem to remember a conversation which you said that having small children is like feeling that your brain is tied to like a, a racehorse. Yeah, like, <laughs> I think it's like a team of wild relate horses. To I think like that. I said. I like, That's exactly what it feels like. Um, but you, you mentioned travel and uh, we, we met uh, Nicole in August when you were in Tel Aviv. I thought that was courageous enough for someone to come to Tel Aviv in August. But no, no, you continued to visit Beirut. Can I ask you a little bit about that, about that sure. whole kind of travel and, and how that, you know, felt as an Israeli, obviously we're so close, but we can't enter. So I'm just, I'm very curious about that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I have wanted to go to Lebanon for many, many years and Beirut has been this kind of 
city in my mind, the only other comparison I can think of is a place like Tehran. It's, it's this almost forbidden place, right? Mm-hmm. Because as an American with uh, lots of Israeli comings and goings, it's not easy to get there either. So um, I've always dreamed of it and it's so close to Tel Aviv and I've spent mm-hmm. so much time in Tel Aviv and there's always this kind of like discussion of the, of Beirut somehow being similar in some ways to Tel Aviv and, and trying to imagine what that's like. So so it's been a dream and I suddenly had an opportunity for various reasons to go there with someone who who knew the place, who knows the place um, somewhat. And um, it was remarkable to me. As always, one of the things I'm left with is how the imaginary city that you live with all your life um, vanishes, right? You lose access to it the moment the real replaces it. <laughs> and I want both. You know, you want to keep both somehow because that city you lived with that you long to go to becomes just as meaningful to you somehow. So my imagined Beirut is gone, but it's been replaced by this really rich and complex and difficult portrait of a city that was, um, that just struck me so much. I, I you know, walking in the streets there, it's the first of all, nothing like Tel Aviv. I just want to say, it didn't feel at all like Tel Aviv to me. Um, and, and it's a larger city. It's a more, you know, I guess if Tel Aviv isn't chaotic enough, but it's a much more chaotic city and architecturally, just visually. But walking down the street there, what I found so strange was, you know, there'd be a beautiful, new, completely renovated building. And then the next building would be absolutely just a shell of itself. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't figure out what was the catastrophe that caused that. Was the catastrophe um, the civil war? Was it this explosion of the port, which had a much larger effect than I imagined? Is it because of the economy? And so there's all this, this not knowing how this strange destruction came to be, because there's so many possibilities for what might have caused it. And and then and then in the midst of that, this incredible life of these people in the city and. It was strange and a strange and beautiful experience to be there. Nicole Kress, it's such a pleasure and an honor. And really, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We can me. continue talking to you for another two hours. Oh. Thank you. Nicole Kraus, just the person you would want to hear from in this time of the year or any time it actually made me want to go back to the books the way she was speaking about them the process the thought and the way she is deep in jewish tradition and jewish letters her point about talking with the dead that line of um, basheva singer which actually is quoted in stiesel where the shulam stiesel says every man is a cemetery you know that you carry around with you all of your own losses and on your own influences dead and alive i just thought that had an echo of that and she is somebody to me right in that tradition one of the great jewish writers yes i could have listened to her for going on and talking about her writing for uh for hours and 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 hours i think she's one of those writers and i hope this is a compliment because it's meant as one it's a jewish compliment it sounds like it is but you're not sure it is but i mean that you're one of those writers where you you could get a page of her writing and you know it's her there's very yeah. distinct, very distinct style of feeling this deep compassion with her characters that I'm not sure all writers or all modern writers are something that they, they do a lot. But um, that yes, is definitely I'm, a compliment, I'm, by the way, if you say okay, to good, a writer, good. your, your okay. work is identifiable immediately. Every writer wants to believe that and hear that. 
So that is 100% a compliment. We should say that we will be back with a regular program at the usual time next week. If you love Unholy and while you're, look, you're in synagogue, Kol Nidre or Yom Kippur, you're looking for things to talk about with the person next to you, why don't tell them about Unholy? Say this is the thing that is a huge improvement. Make it a resolution for the year ahead that they, if they want to be inscribed they should become regular listeners. Maybe I'm over-promising here. Just a um, little bit. Just a little bit. Maybe a little bit. I'm overdoing it, I know. Um, but yeah, spread the word. And we will say our thank yous uh, to Gaia Glaser, Omer Prima, Drom Atik, and Yair Bashan. Uh, have an easy fast, Jonathan. We always uh, make sure that after the fast that we're okay, so we'll discuss later. But uh, we shall talk soon, and uh, we'll be back next week. Fast one. Be well. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.